Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. We're jumping into the series, or we're actually kind of middle way through this series, a series, uh, what we're calling Shocking Savior, because we're looking at Jesus Christ, realizing that Jesus is not just the most interesting man in human history, the most influential man in human history, but that Jesus was very shocking in the sense of the things that he did and the things that he said, and this made a permanent impact on human history, and really is the thing that we need to listen to the most if we're looking how to align our lives in a way that was really designed for us, a way that is pleasing to God. We must listen to Jesus and what he says. Now, there was interestingly that a polling company did a survey about a decade ago and just started asking people questions and wanted to figure out popularity rating or, or approval rating as it's called. I know we're getting into like midterm elections, right? So approval rating is a term we use. Well, G they did a, 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 a poll and found that Jesus had a very high approval rating among Americans. Jesus had a 90% approval rating among Americans, 90%, which means that when surveyed, people said, 90% of people said they had a favorable view of Jesus. That's pretty high. Santa Claus got 67%. Somebody said, oh, poor St. Nicholas, right? Maybe they, maybe they got coal. Maybe those uh, 23% or something, they got coal, and that's why they're, or 33%, they got coal, and that's why they're upset. Mother Teresa got 83%. I know, I know they're like, oh, well, maybe Jesus is pretty impressive there. 90%. He beat out Santa Claus, beat out Mother, Mother Teresa. Well, Jesus didn't actually claim the top spot. Uh, two other people beat Jesus out. Okay. Uh, second place was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln beat Jesus Christ by 1%. He got 91% approval rating. Okay. Now, who got the top spot? The top spot got 93%. So 3% higher than Jesus, 2% higher than Abraham Lincoln, and a lot of percent higher than Santa Claus. 93%, the top spot was actually claimed by you. Yeah, by you. When surveyed, and Americans were asked, what's your view of yourself? 
93% of people had a very favorable view of themselves. Now, we're not going to talk about, that's a whole other sermon to talk about and what that means. The reason I bring that up is I want to show that, that Jesus has a very high approval rating even now. 2,000 years after his earthly ministry, Jesus still has a very high approval rating. But even we could expand that out and we could, go, we could look globally. Beyond America, we could look globally. Did you know that 75%, 75% of people on this globe know some details about Jesus? He's wildly popular. And I think the, the reason for this is because many of the major religions in our world include Jesus in their kind of list of teachers that are admired and teachers that are appreciated. 75%. But as high as Jesus' approval rating is in America, and as popular as Jesus is globally, Jesus is not satisfied with that. Jesus doesn't want a bunch of uh, subscribers, or Jesus doesn't want to, you know, sign a bunch of signatures or take a bunch of selfies. Jesus doesn't just want um, appreciation or admiration. Jesus wants more than that. Jesus wants worship. Jesus doesn't want to just be seen as like a great guy. He wants to be seen as God. And that's a lot different. And this is what he demands of us. This is what He calls us to. It's good to start with appreciation. It's good to start with uh, admiration. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're, you're curious about Christianity. You're curious about Jesus, and you're like, well, I'm going to come to church to figure these things out. I admire Jesus's uh, sacrificial life. I admire some of His teaching, and that's great, and that's good, but that's not the destination that Jesus wants you to get to. That's a step in the right direction, but it's not the destination that Jesus wants. Jesus wants worship, which leads us to our big idea for today. This is the main idea of the passage we're going to cover today. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. Our big idea for today is this. Jesus wants adoration, not appreciation. We can't just admire Jesus and his moral teaching. We can't just admire Jesus and his sacrificial life. That's the start. But when we really dig down deep into the scriptures, really dig down deep into the teachings of Jesus, dig down deep into the teachings of Jesus' followers, we'll see that that Jesus calls us to something much more. He wants us to see him as God and not just a great guy. He wants the highest position in our life. In fact, Jesus can't ask for a higher position in our life. He wants the top spot. He wants to be seen as God. He wants to be worshiped. Let me show you how this is incredibly clear in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 2, and we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to see the disciples have to realize this about Jesus, that even the closest disciples to Jesus were really on this precipice, this kind of edge right here in their experience with Jesus. They admired him. Uh, they, they, in a sense, appreciated him. But Jesus is going to call him to something much, much deeper in our passage today. Let, let me show you this. Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 2. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Verse 2 says this. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, And John led them up a mountain to be alone. As the men watched, 
Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Okay, so they have this amazing mountaintop experience here. Now, Jesus singles out Peter, James, and John. He says, I want you guys to come with me, and I want you to see and experience this transformation. I want you to see me transfigured, is the term we often use. I want you to see me next to two men that have been dead for several years. I want you to see this amazing experience. Now, if you've been following with us for a while through the Bible, you know that Jesus had much more than three followers. Peter, James, and John are sometimes singled out for these kind of uh, uh, privileged experiences, if you will. We saw this uh, early in, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 5, I believe it was, when Jesus raised a young girl from the dead. Peter, James, and John were witnesses of that. We'll see later in the gospel of Mark when Jesus is praying right before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, he brings these three guys along as well. So at first kind of glance, we think to ourselves, okay, maybe these are, the, these are the front row guys in math class. Like these are the math nerds, right? These are top of the class. These are the ones that get all the gold stars, always get the answer right for Jesus. And so that's why they're in this kind of privileged group. Well, it's true that they are singled out, but these guys aren't always successful, even though they're singled out. In fact, the majority of the time when they're singled out for these experiences, they actually fail in some way. And so we're going to actually see that in our passage today. Jesus takes them on this experience. He he brings them up a mountain. And then Jesus, it says, is transformed. And he starts glowing. Now, the word used here in the Greek to describe what's happening to Jesus, it's the same Greek word we get our word metamorphosis from. So just think about how drastic of a change that is. When you say uh, something uh, uh, went through a metamorphosis, you're talking like caterpillar to butterfly. That's what you're talking about. There's a dynamic change that's happening. And this is what Peter, James, and John are experiencing. Jesus all of a sudden changed. Sometime that they're walking up the mountain, Jesus' appearance changes. Now, there's an Old Testament story of this happening to another leader. Moses. Moses went up the mountain and had an encounter with God. He met God. He was near God. And when Moses was going down the mountain, the people realized that his face was glowing because of his encounter with God. It's almost like God's glory, like ricocheted off of his face or something. So Peter, James, and John may be thinking, wait, this is like that story. This is like, this is like Moses. So maybe they're thinking, well, okay, maybe Jesus is like Moses. Maybe he's a prophet and a teacher and a leader like Moses, a great man. Maybe not God, but a great man. Now, Jesus' experience of transfiguration or metamorphosis is different because Moses is described as kind of having his face experience this change, this glow. In Mark's gospel, we see it, all of Jesus is changed. But that's not the only thing that happens. Jesus is transfigured 
He is changed, or as some New Testament kind of scholars would say, Jesus kind of peeled back his humanity and shone forth his divinity. There's more that happens than just Jesus changing. Now Jesus is accompanied by two people, Moses and Elijah, which is very interesting because these guys have been dead for hundreds of years. Try to put yourself in the shoes of Peter, James, and John. You're walking up this mountain with Jesus. You've seen Jesus do some pretty crazy stuff. You've seen him still a storm. You've seen him heal people. You've seen him cast out demons. You've seen these things. But now you're walking up this mountain with Jesus and all of a sudden, boom, he starts glowing. And then two dead guys are next to him and they're talking with him. This is a significant experience, right? Well, who are these guys? Why Moses and why Elijah? I think it's very interesting that these are the two figures standing next to the glowing Jesus. Moses and Elijah were both known in the Old Testament for having these experiences with God. Experiences where they came up a mountain and God showed up. In Exodus 19, this happens with Moses. In 1 Kings 19, it happens with Elijah. So we have these two men who've had these kind of mountaintop experiences with God, have encountered God, now they're showing up at the mountain again. But even more significant is what these men meant to the future hope of Israel. Because Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting for a hero. Waiting for a dynamic leader to come and bring back the blessing that they used to have. And they call this hero in the Old Testament Messiah. And they've had great kings and great leaders and all these people, but nobody has been Messiah yet. And now that they're under the Roman oppressor, now that they're kind of being ruled, they're not a people who really own their own land in a sense. They're still a people that are kind of pressed down by another empire. The hunger for Messiah, the hunger for the hero is really, really strong. And so they're waiting for it. Well, Moses and Elijah were connected to this idea of ushering the age of the Messiah. Let me show you this. Let's, let's go back several hundred years to a prophet named Malachi. This is Malachi chapter 4. And what I want to show you is why these two men in particular are significant. Why these two dead guys next to Jesus. This is Malachi chapter 4. Remember to obey. This is God speaking to his people and saying, I want to prepare you for Messiah, for this hero coming. And look at the two names he mentions. He says, now, remember to obey the law of Moses. I want you to remember that leader and all the commands that he gave you when he came down from Mount Sinai. After he experienced my glory, I gave him the Ten Commandments, and then after that, gave them much more commandments. I want you to remember that guy, Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives, his preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and he'll strike the land with a curse. So in this prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes, God tells the people of Israel, I want you to remember Moses and I want you to remember Elijah because before I come, Elijah is going to come. Now, if you remember from Mark chapter 1, We know that Mark said that a prophet like Elijah had come in John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. 
that John the Baptist is the one who prepared the way for the Lord's coming. We've already seen it. And that's a quote from Malachi chapter 3. So we've already seen this kind of setup here. John the Baptist ushered in the ministry of Jesus. He's the one who baptized Jesus. He's the one that John the Baptist talked about. He said that Jesus was going to come and baptize with the Spirit and with fire. So John's whole ministry was to set up Jesus, and John was acting like the prophet Elijah. Well, now we have Elijah right there. So not only a prophet like Elijah is setting this up, but Elijah himself is right next to Jesus. And Moses was the one that God wanted them to remember. What's interesting about Moses, too, is right before Moses died, now this is over a thousand years, I think 1,600 years actually before Jesus, way before, right before Moses died, Moses made a promise. Inspired by God, Moses made a promise. And look at the promise he makes to the people of Israel. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's kind of the last speech. It's almost like Moses is doing his own funeral, if you will. He knows he's going to die. He knows his days are numbered, and he wants Israel to be prepared. He, under God's power, of course, led the people out of Egypt, brought them all the way to the promised land, didn't get into the promised land, but right before they get there, Moses says, man, I want to give you some instructions. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is basically his last sermon. Like, you think my sermons are long? Read the book of Deuteronomy, okay? You got to give me some grace there. Deuteronomy chapter 18, look at what he says. This is Moses. Moses continued, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. That's going to come back in our passage. You must listen to him. So think about the people of Israel. Think about Peter, James, and John. They know God's Messiah is coming. They know this hero is coming. And they know the promise given hundreds, over thousands, a thousand years ago, was given that Moses, there'd be a prophet like him. Moses said a new prophet's coming. Elijah was supposed to usher in this age of the prophet. What is this experiencing, experience telling Peter, James, and John? Jesus is special. These guys, these great leaders, Moses and Elijah, they're set up guys. They're set up, guys, to spotlight Jesus, whose whole person is transformed. Not just his face glowing, his whole person is transformed. So Peter, James, and John are looking at the spotlight that is on Jesus. And we have these two support characters who in the Old Testament we know were pointing to the day of Messiah, someone better than them. Now here's the sad thing. Peter, James, and John totally miss it. They totally miss it. They're going to put Jesus on the same playing field as Moses and Elijah. They're not going to see Jesus as unique and special. They're going to see him as a great guy. They're going to admire him and, and, and maybe appreciate him and revere him, but they're not going to adore him. They're not going to worship him. They miss it. Let me show you this. Go back to Mark chapter 9. Look at Peter's response right away. And I think Peter is probably speaking for the other two guys because that's often what Peter does. I don't know if he took a vote and said, hey guys, what do you think? But oftentimes, I think what's being expressed by the gospel writers is that Peter is the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. So I think Peter is talking on behalf of James and John. Look what Peter says. First words out of Peter's mouth. Verse 5, Peter ex exclaimed, Rabbi, which means teacher, it is wonderful for us to be here. 
let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said these things because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified, right? If you don't know what to say, you know what you should say? Nothing. Just say nothing. It's not going to be good, right? Now, we got to cut Peter some slack here. If I saw Jesus glowing and two dead guys talking to him, I'd be afraid. And I'm a talker. And sometimes talkers talk when they're afraid because we don't know what else to do. We're talkers, right? This is how we deal with things. We're the ones when you go see a scary movie in the movie theater, right? And we yell at the lady, he's behind you. He's behind you, right? Don't go run to the shed. No, the killer's in there. And just like the movie's already been played. Like, you know, it's not going to change, right? That's what talkers do when they're scared. Well, I think Peter's a talker. And we're told that he's terrified. The first words that come out of Peter's mouth is, teacher. Doesn't that feel incredibly underwhelming? Jesus is literally glowing. He's glowing. And two dead guys are next to him and they're talking. Teacher's the best you got? Clearly, he, he, he's, he's not grasping the gravity of the situation before him. Jesus is not just a teacher, and he's much more than that. And then he makes this really weird idea. He says, oh man, it is good for us to be here, right? Thank you for stating the obvious, right? It is good for us to be here. Um, let's make some tents. I don't... He's from the Pacific Northwest. Like, that's what's going on here. He's, just, he's like, it's just tent time. I like to be here. Let's pitch a tent, right? Let's make a tent, and we'll make a tent. We'll make three tents, one for you, one for you, one for you. Now, honestly, it is kind of hard to understand what is Peter talking about here? Now, again, I think we got to realize Mark told us he's terrified. So maybe he hasn't thought through this plan very much. But why would he want to build a tent, I think in order to understand what Peter's crazy proposal is, is we have to look back at the Old Testament. We have to look back at at a thing called the tent of meeting, or what is also referred to as the tabernacle. You see, when God brought his people out of Egypt and he was bringing them to the promised land, God wanted to meet with his people. So right at the very beginning, once they get through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is destroyed, God meets them on a mountain. And so his presence shows up and he speaks in thunder and lightning and a cloud kind of comes just showing the presence of God. And he wants to be with his people as they journey to the promised land. So he says, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to build me a tent, build me a tabernacle a tent of meaning, a place where I can symbolically manifest my presence before you. God is, of course, everywhere, but a special manifestation and expression of my presence will be with you guys, and it'll be mobile. You can move it, so you can tear it down. We'll get to a place, we'll camp. You set up my tent, and then put your tents around it. So the the tent of meeting or, or tabernacle was a place kind of where heaven and earth collided, where they came together. And this is what I think Peter is trying to do. He's saying, let's kind of host this heavenly event, right? Whatever this heavenly experience is we're we're having, let's, let's find a place where we can host this, we can house this, where we can preserve this. I think that's what he's doing. And even if we can't guess what he's doing, notice how the plan is put into practice. He wants to make three tents, 
one for each of the figures that he sees. So how is he treating Jesus? He's treating him like Moses, and he's treating him like Elijah. He's putting him on the same playing field. Now, now, that's a pretty high playing field. I mean, Moses, that's, that's pretty big. Elijah, that's pretty big. Great prophets, people that should be uh, admired, people that should be appreciated, people that you should look up to. Those are great guys. But Peter misses the fact that Jesus is so much more than that, which is really interesting because of what Peter just said in chapter 8. What Peter just said in chapter 8 is, as Jesus was kind of going around and he was curious, he, he kind of did his own poll, if you will. And so in chapter 8, he says, hey guys, what is everybody saying about me? You know, what, what, what's the opinion? How's my approval rating? Did I beat Santa Claus? Did I beat Mother Teresa? Of course, those two figures did not exist in first century Palestine. But Jesus wants to know, what's public opinion about me? And Jesus gets a collection of answers, and then Jesus says, okay, but what do you guys say? And of course, who speaks for the disciples? or who at least speaks first, Peter does. And Peter says a really good thing. Look at this, is Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the hero that we've been waiting for. Nailed it, Peter. But apparently, Peter didn't fully grasp what that meant. Because in chapter 8, he nails it. In chapter 9, he whiffs it. Just, just falls apart in the last inning like the Dodgers. <laughs> Amen. Can I get a hallelujah for that? I'm not a Dodger fan. My mom is. Mom, if you're watching, ha! No, I'm just kidding. I love you, mom. I love you, okay? I do. I really do. Sorry. I'm not sorry your Dodgers lost, but I love you. I'm going to send that to her today. No, 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 I'm not. That's, that would be a bad, be a bad, bad boy. Sorry. Bad son. Bad son moment. Okay? But he whiffed it. He missed it. He totally had it. And then he missed it. God sees this and is going to respond to this. Go go back to Mark chapter 9. I think God the Father, expressing himself in this cloud, will then speak a voice out, and he will confirm to Peter, Peter, my son, Jesus Christ, is not like Moses and Elijah. He is more. And he kind of clears the playing field away. Look at how God brings focus to this. This is verse 7. Then the cloud overshadowed them. This word is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe God's presence in the tabernacle and God's presence in the temple. Same word used in Exodus and in 1 Kings. So that we're having an experience like God showed them in the Old Testament. This cloud overshadows them. And a voice from the cloud said, this, it's like God is pointing his finger. This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Do you remember that phrase? That's exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. There's going to be a prophet. Listen to him. Now God is saying what? God the Father is saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Not everybody else. Focus, Peter. Focus. And then look what happens. He's, his voice comes out and he says, this is my beloved son. 
Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. What does the father do in a sense? He pushes away everybody else. Everybody else kind of fades into the background. Don't look at these guys. Don't look at Moses. Don't look at Elijah. Those were set up guys. My son is center stage. Listen to him. It's interesting that this phrase that comes from the cloud, God the Father's voice, he almost said the same exact sentence in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was baptized, it says he comes out of the water. Look at this. This is Mark 1. Look at what he says of Jesus. This is kind of the Holy Spirit falls and a voice comes from heaven. It says, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Who is the voice talking to at the baptism of Jesus? You are my dearly loved son. He's talking to Jesus. The phrase in Mark chapter 9 is slightly different. In Mark 9, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who's the, cloud t- or who's the voice talking to now? Here he's talking to Jesus. Here, who is he talking to? Peter, James, John. This is a confirmation. Jesus, you're my beloved son. The mission you're on is the mission we've agreed upon in the very beginning of the foundation of the world that you would come in flesh, take on the shame and sin and guilt of humanity, die on the cross and rise again. This is how we redeem our creation. This is communication overheard by others, but was directly addressed to Jesus Christ himself. Now it changes. Why? Because who needs to realize the unique nature of Jesus Christ? Peter, James, and John. This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And Peter missed it. But after this moment, I don't think he misses it. We get a really cool opportunity here to see just how this impacted Peter. Because Peter wrote about this experience later in his second letter in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at how he recalls this experience. And look at how this changed his perspective. Because what we're going to see is Peter is going to confess really what he confessed in Mark chapter 8. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. But he's also going to say a lot more. And I think that's impacted by Mark chapter 9. Look at how he recalls this experience when he writes in 2 Peter. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that phrase. Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just the Christ. That's a title, not a last name. Jesus' last name is not Christ. That's a title. It means Messiah, anointed one, the promised hero of the Old Testament. But he doesn't just call him Christ. He calls him Lord. That's a term of worship. That's adoration. Why would Peter now change his tone? He called him Christ in Mark chapter 8. But then he has the Mark chapter 9 experience, the transfiguration where he sees the glowing Jesus next to two men who are set up guys for the Messiah. Then those guys clear away and the voice of God says, this is my son. Listen to him. And that changes Peter. Look at how he recalls how this is the experience that changed him. We're in verse 16. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, 
This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard the voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Isn't that crazy? That's the experience that changed everything for Peter. Now, I think that experience from Mark 9 and the subsequent kind of revelations of the nature of who Jesus is, culminating in, of course, his resurrection, this changed Peter. He knew, I can't put Jesus on the same playing field as Moses. I can't put him on the same playing field as Elijah. He is the Son of God. He's to be worshiped. Jesus wants adoration, not just appreciation. Now, how do we know if that's true for us? How do we know if we've had that kind of Peter-like experience? Go back to Mark chapter 9. The voice from the cloud says, this is my dearly loved son. And then it says, listen to him. Here's how I think we know. Just very practically, here's how we know if we have truly grasped the nature of who Jesus Christ is. Notice how God the Father set it up. He said, this is my dearly loved son. He makes a statement, and then he makes a command or an imperative. He says, listen to him. So he grounds that command based on the statement of the unique nature of who Jesus Christ is. Why should you listen to him? Because he's the very son of God. So we know if we listen to him, then maybe we realize just the significance of the nature of Jesus Christ. So let's just ask ourselves: do we listen to him? Do we listen to the voice of Jesus Do we really weigh his authority like he is the very son of God? Not just a teacher to be admired. Not not a, a, a philosopher to be appreciated and studied. But do we bow down and adore him and listen to him and worship him? I think we could really just look how we view the scriptures. Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry validated the Old Testament. He quoted it. He spoke about it. He validated the Old Testament as the very words of God. Jesus, of course, spoke, and he told his first century followers that the Holy Spirit was going to guide them into truth. He promised the New Testament. He affirmed the Old Testament. So to listen to the voice of Jesus is to realize that Father, Son, Holy Spirit want us to hear the voice of them in this book. So we ask ourselves the question, do I listen to Jesus? We could really ask the question, am I listening to this book? And I think we have to oftentimes really just confess that when we read this book, what we're listening for is an echo and not instructions. Here's what I mean by that. When we read through the scripture and we're listening for an echo, it's because we're trying to hear our opinion be supported by the Bible and come back to us. So we search the scriptures to see, is my point here? Is my position here? Is my understanding here? What we're listening for is an echo and not instruction. Here's a really practical way to see if that's what's in our heart. If we truly weigh the nature of Jesus and know that his voice is unique because he's the very son of God, equal to God, do we listen to his voice? When you read the scriptures, if you never find something in here that you don't like, or if you never find something in here that you don't want to do, then you're listening for an echo and not instructions. 
If you're never challenged by this book, then you're listening for an echo and not instructions. If you never at, at some time are reading through like, oh man, I, how am I supposed to do that? I, I don't want to do that. If all you hear is the things you want to do and the things that are comfortable for you, friend, be honest. You're listening for an echo and not instruction. I'll give you a perfect example. You may not like me after this one, but that's okay. My approval rating is going to go down. <laughs> let's, let's, get really, let's just get really, really practical, okay? Really, really practical. We're running into midterm elections. Ooh. Can we all just say that collective like, ooh. I saw some hands go, all right, where are you going, Pastor? <laughs> Bring it on. I'm about, you're like, phone out. I'm about to tweet whatever mess he says. <laughs> Let's just examine ourselves. Okay? We get to midterm elections. Political tensions are happening. We're voting. We're participating in democracy. We're trying to, to live out our Christian convictions. We're trying to not go against conscience. We're trying to do all these things. Jesus has this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus is saying, those who are most set against you, not those who disagree with you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those who not only disagree with you, but want to hurt you, commit violence against you, you love those guys. You pray for those guys. Just as Jesus, when he was crucified, prayed for those who are putting nails into his hands, causing blood to flow out of his body, who were ridiculing him and mocking him, he prayed for them. If we're not challenged by that, man, I don't... What else is going to challenge you? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But then we start to search our social media feed. And we see our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't know, maybe you, you help me with this experience. When you're doing that, do you think to yourself, wow, look at all my Christian brothers and sisters loving those who disagree with, with them. I bet they're praying for them. Is that what you're impressed by? Okay, maybe you have the same experience, right? When you're, when you're scrolling through, are you captivated by the thought, man, these Christians, they love and they pray for those who disagree with them? If I'm honest, I would say that's not what I'm overwhelmed by. That's not the pr impression that I get. That's not the overwhelming experience that I get. But we need to listen to the voice of Jesus. He is the Son of God. The Son of God who commands us, you take up your cross and you follow me. If you're not challenged by that, he's saying die to yourself. Then maybe that means dying to your career because you're working 80s hours a week and you're not loving your family. And Jesus tells you to love your family, to love your kids, to love your wife. Does he tell you to provide? Sure he does. But has ambition caught you? Has the American dream really become a kingdom of Christ nightmare? Are you so captured by political advancement that you've lost that the kingdom of God is not built by a ballot box? But it's really built by the, those who are willing to shed their blood for the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Right? Have we missed that? Are we really listening to Jesus? Are we just wanting an echo? We're, we're hoping that we'll just say our Republican views and they'll come back to us. Or we'll say our Democratic views and they'll come back to us. We'll say our Libertarian views and they'll just come back to us. Guess what? There's no Republicans, Democrats, or Libertarians in here. You know why? Because there's no Americans in here. That's an amen. You're like, I don't know. I think they're like, no, they're not. They're not in there. <laughs> they're not even in this country. <laughs> Do you listen to the voice of Jesus? Are you looking for an echo or for instruction? This is a perfect testing ground over the next several months of how much that's true for American Christians. Now, maybe you're here and you're just curious about Jesus. And you're just trying to put all the pieces together. And I want to tell you, the teachings of Jesus you're going to admire. Oh, man. The stuff he says, you'll be surprised at how much you see it in our culture. TV shows, movies, and books. I love to point it out to my kids. Like when I see something like, yeah, Jesus taught that. Oh, that's the golden rule of Jesus. Oh, Jesus taught that too. You'd be surprised at how much the teachings of Jesus are kind of littered throughout our culture. It's pretty great. But you have to know this right up front. You have to know this. Jesus is going to call you to more than just appreciation and admiration. He's going to call you to adore Him and to worship Him. You can't just put Him on the same place as a good moral teacher, philosopher. That's not enough. Jesus wants more, and He will not settle until He gets all of that from you. So there will be a time where you have to cross that line of commitment and say to yourself, I'm just not going to admire Jesus. I'm going to adore Jesus. Here's what I think you'll find. That, is, that step right there, it's challenging but it is so satisfying because it's exactly what you were made to do, to adore him, to worship him, and not just appreciate him. Church family, let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Christ, I thank you that you, you display very clearly that you are the unique son of God. Christ, it is clear that you hunger for more than our appreciation. You hunger for more than our admiration. You, you want to be adored. You want to be worshiped. And it's not because you're vain. It's not because that would be inappropriate. It's because that is the most appropriate thing for us to do. God, we are your creatures created in your image to reflect your glory. We are designed to bow to you and it is the most delightful thing we find that is an appropriate response. It is the most delightful thing when we bow to you, the most delightful thing when we offer our lives up to you and say, I want to worship you with all of my heart, with all that I am. Father, maybe what we need right now this week is we need, we need a Mark chapter 9 experience. We need the playing field to be just leveled before us. Maybe, maybe some people and some dreams and some principles need to fade away, just like Moses and Elijah faded away and only what was left was Jesus Christ. Maybe in our lives, that's what needs to happen, is in our minds we need to see that everything needs to fade away. Jesus is the Son of God and His voice is what we should listen to. Holy Spirit, I pray, I pray that you would work in us adoration for Jesus Christ worship of Jesus Christ, singular focus for Jesus Christ, and for Him and for Him alone.
And if that benefits what we do in society, that benefits what we, what we vote for and all those different things, then praise God. But let our alignment never veer off in a different direction. May it always be centered on Christ. And then we may serve those around us because of our love and our adoration of the Son of God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.